Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Read More Podcast, the show that brings readers and writers together. I'm Marva Hinton. Today we're at the Miami Book Fair. My guest is Sarah Collins. Her debut novel, The Confessions of Franny Langton, came out this past summer. Franny is a woman who was enslaved in Jamaica, then brought to London, where despite slavery being outlawed, she's not truly free. Later, she finds herself on trial for the murders of George Benham and his wife, Marguerite, the couple she worked for as a maid, and her attorney asked her to write her life story in an effort to save herself. Sarah, thank you so much for stopping by to talk about your work. Thank you so much for having me. It's really wonderful to be here. This book, for me, it just felt like nothing I had ever read before, and I thoroughly enjoyed it. It's a gothic novel dealing with the impact of slavery and the pseudoscience of the time that concerned itself with whether black people were truly human. Through the very personal story of Franny Langton, a former slave who loves to read and who finds love in a surprising place. Franny is such a unique character. When the novel opens, she's being called the mulatta murderess. How did she first come to you? Um... Through a very long and arduous process, which I think anyone who's attempted to write a novel could um, relate to, I knew in theory that I wanted to do something different with the idea of writing about a black woman in the context of historical fiction, because I knew that I was fed up with looking to historical fiction, in particular around the early 19th century, and for black characters and seeing only victims. So I wanted to write a novel that was about a black woman during that time period who, um, and this was very deliberate on my part, who was highly educated, who was angry and, you know, honest in her observations of the people around her, who was passionate, who was in love. But all of that was really just academic. Um, What I needed was a person to come to life for me. And that really happened when I tapped into my love of the classic Gothic romance. Um, I had this obsession growing up with the Gothic Gothic romances I read and reread, in particular Wuthering Heights and Rebecca and Jane Eyre. And for me, Franny's kind of a Jane Eyre character. It was her anger that gave her a heartbeat, her kind of railing against her circumstances, her falling in love with the madwoman in the attic as well, by the way. Um, But in particular, uh, for me, the novel started with an image of her in London, in this very gothic setting outside this Mayfair mansion in a fog. And her predicament was that she had been arrested and accused of a crime she was sure she hadn't committed, but couldn't prove her innocence of. And that was this this alleged murder of her lover, her mistress. Um, I wanted to subvert that idea um, by having her and the madwoman in the attic fall in love. And this line, the first line that I kept, um, which was the first line I sort of heard her say, which was, I never would have done what they say I've done to Madame because I loved her. And in that, I felt, uh, in that line, I felt I had discovered or tapped into the syntax of the novel, but also the syntax of the character, this idea of willful submission, this idea of a woman who is kept in her place by society, but who is really bursting in every way she's bigger than the constraints that are placed on her. And that was the protagonist I wanted to write. Well, you've described this novel as your personal 
antidote to Mark Twain's Jim in The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, who was the first black character you ever encountered in literature. What did you want to counter through your portrayal of Franny? Um, well, I mean, first of all, I wanted to tell a story. I uh, grew up with such a passionate love of reading and books. I fell in love with books at a very early age. They have been the things that gave my life uh, meaning and purpose that, you know, I credit everything that I am and almost everything that's happened to me to that love of reading. And so first and foremost, I really wanted a page turner. It wasn't that I was setting out, and I don't think you should set out to um, write about messages or themes. I wanted to set out to write a story. It was very important to me that um, in particular because Franny is a person who had been enslaved and there are so many stereotypes about stories about people like that. You know, I've said before that I feel as if we've come to a point where people see that something is a story about a person who had been enslaved and think, oh, I know, you know, I know what that story is going to be like. And I wanted to get away from that and to make it a real adventure and a real love story. So first and foremost, just a, just a page turner. Um, but then also this idea that um, writing is a very powerful way of overcoming stereotypes um, and that um, I could challenge ideas about what people would expect from someone like Franny. So, for example, she is um, the most intelligent person in the room and she knows it. Um, she's very wry in her observations. She's also morally complicated and ambiguous. And I've gotten into trouble about that because I think there's this idea that when we're writing about people like her, that um, there should be a sense almost of preserved victimhood, that she should be good in a straightforward and unchallenging way. And I didn't want to go there. I wanted to do something different. Um, and so for all of those reasons, I was kind of drawn to um, to the idea of telling a story that would run completely opposite to the expectations people might have when they pick the book up and read the blurb. You write in great detail about the experiments Franny is forced to help her owner, John Langton, conduct when she was enslaved in Jamaica. He believed that black people were a separate species and he hoped to prove that through his work. His fictional manuscript, Crania was based on a real book with a similar title. How much research went into your writing this book to get to the bottom of those issues and make that part of it very believable? So much research that I'm still asking my family to forgive me for all the time I spent doing it. Um, it was heavily researched and I think my background as a lawyer and all of those days I spent as a lawyer, a young lawyer at the beginning of my career doing research for other people really stood me in good stead. Um, I was really surprised by how much material there is, first of all, about um, this idea that a large part of the ideology justifying slavery was built on this pseudoscience and propped up by experiments on enslaved people themselves, and also by how little we discuss it. Um, and I suppose uh, also by how much the very highly respected thinkers of the Enlightenment were knee deep in this kind of pseudoscience themselves. So people like Voltaire and Hume and Jefferson and a whole long list of the sort of glitterati of the Enlightenment who were really busy on this wild goose chase, you know, with all of these, um, with all of this mistaken, misguided science. 
Um, and because I was writing a gothic novel, it seemed to me that actually this this tied in really well to an almost, in a way, it was um, it was my my sort of homage to Frankenstein that. Um, that uh, that these men had never really had to face up to the consequences of the harm that they had done um, um, with this very unethical behaviour. That in fact, far from facing up to the consequences, we've inherited many of the ideas about um, who we are and and what our world is through the work they left behind and that we consider genius to have been their preserve really only because they told us it was. And then that led me to this um, question which I think really preoccupied me and drove the writing of the novel, which is the extent to which we've inherited, um, or the extent to which we believe that the people who are free to be angry and the people who are free to love and the people who are in control of not only the scientific but the historic record are all the same people. Um, and how the power to tell stories plays into that, that the people who um, the people who write stories and leave them behind are the people who really make their mark, not only on the past, but on, um, you know, on the future in, in really damaging ways. As I mentioned earlier, Franny is given to the Benhams as a gift from John Langton. You've talked about how the story of Francis Barber, a Jamaican boy who was given to a man in London as a gift, sparked your interest in this phenomenon. There's also a young man in the novel with a similar story who interacts with the Benhams and Franny. So we see what happened when a child like this grows up. What was it about the story of Francis Barber that really captured your imagination? Um, I mean, first of all, it was the gift giving. Um, it was so bizarre to me that um, there was this very extensive practice, in particular during the early Georgian period in London, of bringing young children over from plantations and giving them as gift in particular to wealthy noblewomen. It was at really the latest accessory in the same way a Prada bag might, might be nowadays. And how inhumane that practice was, but how utterly hip- hypocritical Georgian society was about this. So, you know, while everyone in Georgian England was patting themselves on the back about the fact that slavery was illegal on English soil and that, you know, that the sort of famous expression was that as soon as a man breathed English air, he was free. There was also this practice of keeping these children essentially as pets and what that did to people. But I was also fascinated in particular um, in the case of the story of Francis Barber, who was given as a gift to Samuel Johnson, who was a sort of great um, British thinker of the time and who was credited with writing the first dictionary. By this idea that, um, you know, here you have this very young, intelligent person who's brought from Jamaica into this world, which must have seemed so different in contrast to the plantation that he had left behind and who's rubbing shoulders with one of the great minds of the age, but who has no outlet for his own intellectual strengths or curiosity. And what that would do to a person you know, as I've said, reading and education was so important to me. I started thinking, well, what about exploring the emotion that that would um, lead to, the, the anger that that would lead to? And what about exploring that in the case of a young woman who's brought to England and gi- given as a gift? 
Um, but I also wanted to think about, and I, I wanted to get away from the stereotypes that we encounter when we think about the effects of slavery on people. I wanted to look at, there's a line in the novel where Franny says, you know, people think, people think I must have hated all my masters and mistresses. And then she says, but the truth is there was love as well as hurt, as hate. And the truth is the love hurt worse. The thing that was really fascinating to me was to look at, um, these really close relationships that were almost but not quite family, that were built on this kind of subversion on the idea of family. Um, children who were brought up in these households where they both were and were not children of the family and how much that would warp, warp their sense of self um, and what it would mean to both the children and the woman who entered into these relationships when the children became adults and were pulling against the restrictions that those relationships placed on them. So in the case of Franny and the other person in the novel, Laddie, who has been a kind of page boy to Benham's um, wife, um, they're both highly educated and they're owe, they owe their education to these positions of privilege, but they come to resent the price they've had to pay for that. Um, and that led, I think, to a lot of this sort of conflict and tension, which um, was the impetus for all of the kind of dramatic, um, the dramatic energy of the novel. Throughout the novel, Franny is underestimated by a lot of people. And one thing that really set her apart was her ability to read. She also suffers for this. When she's caught reading, she faces a brutal punishment. Of course, in the U.S., it was a crime to teach a slave to read and write. Why was it so important to you that Franny had this ability? Um, I mean, I think one thing that black women are familiar with universally and throughout history is the feeling of being underestimated. Uh, it was so interesting to me to explore that in the context of the early 19th century. It was so interesting for me to think about a character who had this ability. I think it's one of not only the privileges of life, but also uh, the real power that a person can have, this ability to read and write, um, to not only express yourself, but to understand others who are doing the same thing. And the real tragedy of having that denied to you. I have spoken before about how I didn't want to write about a person who had been enslaved. I, I had to kind of drag myself to the idea of doing it kicking and screaming. But one of the things that convinced me to do it eventually was to think about whether I could bring something new to the table. Um, and the seed for that was planted by trying to think about what I would have lost if I had, um, and I, I spoke about this at the same time when I spoke about um, the, the only black character I'd encountered in um, fiction when I was a young person being um, Jim in the Huck Finn story. Thinking about um, what I would have lost if I'd been whisked back to that time period and the thing that would have made the most difference would have been access to books and learning and I wanted to restore that. It was very important to me that the character in this novel be intelligent and that she challenged the expectations um, that we would have of enslaved people. I also wanted to examine uh, something she says, which is that reading is both the best thing and the worst thing that happened to her. Um, because I think to be black 
um, and a reader is to have a very complicated relationship with the world of English literature, which for so long has been both empowering and also disenfranchising, I think, for us as black readers. And I want to look at that in the early 19th century, which was a period that was so caught up with the development of the novel, you know, so kind of playing a bit with um, references to all of the classic early English novels that Franny reads, including Robinson Crusoe and Maul Flanders, um, and how she would feel both empowered um, by reading those and develop a sense of self, but also how damaging it would be for her to understand the more she's educated, um, the extent to which she's really excluded from the world um, and the extent to which she has no ability to change that and the anger that that would lead to. And then to think about how far we've actually come, you know, how much has actually improved. Because I think when you're writing historical fiction that you're not really writing about the past in anything other than a superficial way. What you're trying to do is to tap into something universal. What's the same about the human experience and what has changed? And so that was one of the very, very powerful things that drew me to the to the to, not into the character but the, to the topic as well you've touched on this before but before you started writing you were an attorney for 17 years are there any ways in which your old career prepared you for your new one uh, misery <laughs> <laughs> I was very unhappy as a lawyer um, and then I discovered myself feeling profoundly unhappy as a novelist. And I thought, well, actually, maybe the problem isn't the career, but it might be me. <laughs> um, I mean, I say that kind of tongue in cheek, but I think um, I think it is incredibly difficult to write a novel. Um, and I, I think I became a lawyer as a kind of secondhand way of telling stories because I always wanted to write. But for various reasons, I was dissuaded from doing that, mostly practical, um, because, you know, people uh, rightly think that it's quite difficult and unpredictable to make a living as a writer. But I really wanted to tell stories, and it's actually very difficult to do that. Um, so lawyering prepared me, I think, by um, getting me to think about how we use words and getting me to think about the power of communication, the privilege of communication getting me to think about justice, you know, so one of the themes of the novel is um, justice and the extent to which it's not scientific or objective, the extent to which it is just as bound up with all of our human prejudices as everything else. Um, but also, I think uh, I had a little bit of fun with playing around with the idea of these men in the courtroom and how much courtrooms are crucibles for ego and play acting. Um, and many of the lawyers, I confess, uh, in the novel are based on or they're sort of amalgamations of former colleagues of mine. Um, and so I like to say that any intention to any relationship to persons living or otherwise is uh, entirely intentional. Um, I had a little bit of fun um, thinking about all of the kind of um, grandiose, grandstanding behavior I'd observed as a lawyer in many courtrooms. And, and in particular, and I say this with apologies to the men who are listening, but in particular, how much of that behavior comes from men? <laughs> have any of your former co-workers recognized themselves in the novel? <laughs> if they have, they haven't said anything about it to me. <laughs> 
Well, I just want to ask you a couple of questions now about your reading life. Uh, You mentioned how important that was to you and still is, of course. If you were in a situation where you could only read three books for the rest of your life and really just pour over those and get everything out of them that you could, which three books would you choose? Um, This is a really difficult question because I used to reread books all the time and I used to find that a really rich source of pleasure. And I don't know if it's old age, but I I find that I don't reread books anymore, that I want this sort of instant surprise of a book, um, the the kind of shock of pleasure, if you like, and that it diminishes if I reread. But I will, if I am forced, gone to my head to choose a list of three, put the three that I have have read and reread and probably sort of went into the DNA of this book and certainly my DNA as an author. Um, And so that would be Jane Eyre, um, um, which I think is one of the sort of classic tales of powerlessness converted into power. And for me, reading it as a teenager, it was a, I've described it in an essay as a rallying cry against the badges of my own powerlessness. You know, reading it as a young girl growing up on a small island in the Caribbean um, from which you're never expected to do anything or amount to anything. It really helped me to see how I could be center stage in my own life. Um, I consider it one of the sort of essential planks of a woman's understanding. Beloved um, by Toni Morrison, because there has to be a dose of Toni Morrison on everyone's list, I think. Um, And I would read and reread, not just for the quality of the sentences, but because she did something so exceptional in taking people who had been dehumanized up to that point and really restoring humanity to them. I think it was just a profoundly, significantly life-changing reading experience, that book. And it was the first time as well that I felt I recognized myself, not in the book, but in the author. Um, you know, there, there wouldn't, I wouldn't have written a book without Toni Morrison's example. And then I think it would probably vary, but um, at the moment I would include some poetry um, because I um, there's a line in the book where Franny says, a novel is like a long warm drink, but a poem is a spike to the head. And I think there's something about poetry that brings you to life. I read a little bit of poetry every morning before writing the book. I wanted the kind of imagery and the rhythm and the magic of the language to infect me before I started writing. Poetry reminds you about the fact that you're alive and how it feels. Um, And it's a really electric, instant connection. And, okay, this is cheating because I'm not going to name one, but I'd throw in, at the moment, my absolute favorite poet to read is Kai Miller, but there are so many inventive, playful um, poets working today that it would be very difficult to narrow it down to just one to take along. I'd have to get off this deserted island and find, and find some new, fresh reading material at some point, I have to tell you. <laughs> well, um, conversely, is there a book that stands out for you that you've tried to read maybe you know several times and you know this is a popular book with readers and with critics but you just either you couldn't get through it at all or you did and then you were wondering why what is all the hype about for this book oh my god I love this question I have never been asked this question before and I have an instant instant unmitigated response to it I mean it's something that I have felt profoundly ashamed about all of my life so I confess with a healthy dose of guilt Um, that I have never been able to enjoy a novel by Virginia Woolf, ever. I have tried. 
I think I've tried several times with To The Lighthouse and there's something about her sentences, I find them too circular and endless. And I find it all just a little bit too pretentious for my liking. And I almost feel like I'm going to beg you to edit that out because I can't be a serious novelist and confess, confess to this. But I just do not get along with Virginia Woolf's work. Her essays are fine, but there's something very self-regarding about all of it. Um, so it's just, it's just never been my cup of tea. Well, I think a confession is appropriate, given yes. your book. <laughs> That's my confession. You won't get any more out of me. <laughs> well, what are you reading right now? Um, I've just started an uh, advanced review copy of a book which I'm really enjoying, which I think is going to be published here next year by Kylie Reed called Such a Fun Age. Um, I'm a few chapters in, but so far it's definitely worth it and I can't wait. I'm actually looking forward to a long flight back to London so that I can get stuck in and finish this novel. And what are you working on right now? Do you have any new books in the works? I do. Um, I've just actually finished this screenplay for the first episode of the television series of Franny's because it, uh, Franny because it was optioned for television, um, which means that I've cleared my decks to focus on my second novel, and that focus is long overdue. And all I can say is, um, because I really love lighthearted material, that it's a love story set in a suicide cult. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, and this uh, TV series, is that going to be available over here in the U.S. or is that just going to be in the U.K.? Oh, I hope so. I mean, so it's still in the process of um, development. So it's with the producers now. And I really hope, you know, these things take a long time and it's out of my hands. But I really do hope that it will be something that um, that is available on this side of the Atlantic, not least because of my background you know, as a Caribbean person myself, born in Jamaica, brought up in the Cayman Islands. You know, I'd like to um, I'd, I'd like uh, the story to to have a kind of global audience rather than um, than just a UK one. So we'll see. Fingers crossed. Well, Sarah Collins, thank you so much for coming on Read More to talk about your work. Thank you for having me. It's been great fun. You can find out how to win a free signed copy of The Confessions of Franny Langton on our website, readmorepodcast.com. And if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on iTunes. You can also support Sarah and the show through buying the book on our site. You can follow us on Twitter at Read More Podcast and like us on Facebook. Join us again in two weeks for another edition of the show that brings readers and writers together. Until then, I'm Marva Hinton reminding you to read more.